Welcome to the Center for New American Security's National Security Startups podcast series, hosted by Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program, Ben Fitzgerald. Welcome to our National Security Startups podcast. Today we're talking with Nate Fick, CEO of Endgame, operating partner at Bessemer, uh, and former CEO of the Center for New American Security. Nate, welcome. Ben, thanks. Always good to be back. Awesome. So, uh, Let's jump right into this. You've got lots of experience for this conversation. We could cover a bunch of different things, but let's start with Endgame. Um, just to, to, to get everyone who's listening acquainted, can you just tell us a little bit about Endgame, where it came from, where you are, the, the Endgame story? Sure, uh, happy to. So Endgame builds a software platform to automate the hunt for cyber adversaries inside uh, enterprise architecture. So our Basic proposition is that the cybersecurity industry is in a state of strategic failure, and three numbers sum that up empirically. $50 billion spent on security products and services last year, and yet somewhere between 75 and 99% of enterprises have been compromised, and the average dwell time for sophisticated adversaries once they're in, that is the time from breach to detection of a breach, Mm -hmm. is 150 days. So we're spending a lot, but the... Uh, defenses are still porous, and when the bad guys get in, they lurk for a long time before they're detected. So the traditional defensive security stack may stop the C team, and it may stop the B team, but the A team gets in. And so we specialize then in hunting proactively on networks to identify and then remediate that A team. That's great. So how long has the organization been in business? How did it get its start? What's the the background? So the company was started by the senior team uh, from a company called Internet Security Systems. They sold ISS to IBM in 2007 and uh, shortly thereafter started Endgame. Uh, And their founding vision uh, was to build a uh, software product to automate uh, what had previously been a bespoke Uh, services-driven approach in the government to automating computer network operations. Mm -hmm. So that was the company's uh, origin. It was purely in the federal space and focused on the intelligence community and DOD. Um, I was brought in as CEO almost four years ago in order to broaden the business into the commercial enterprise market Mm -hmm. and take some of the defining uh, technical advantages and adversary knowledge developed in the Fed market and apply it to enterprise defense in both the federal and commercial markets. So I think that's a really interesting uh, point. Given that Endgame sort of had its genesis in the national security space, what sort of advantages and disadvantages have you found that that heritage provides to you as, as a business that is, is increasingly focused on the commercial space? So this is where security is interesting and perhaps unique. Uh, This is a field where we're not only talking about market competitive dynamics, you're you're actually talking about living, breathing, sentient human adversaries on the other side of the connection, right? And uh, in the course of working with the federal government, one acquires a very granular and sophisticated adversary understanding. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's better than learning about an adversary reading white papers, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's better to have been the adversary. Yeah. So, you know, a quarter of our company almost comes out of places like the NSA or the Air Force where uh, they've been on the front lines uh, of some of the most uh, frequently hacked institutions in the world or attacked institutions in the world. And at the same time, they are the attacker, yeah. uh, you know, with government authority when they're yeah, still yeah, in government. And, uh, and so they have a very... 
a detailed, granular, and up-to-date understanding of adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures. So, so I think that becomes important. And then in terms of how the market views your product uh, and, and uh, the competition that you engage in with other cybersecurity providers, how does that play out, uh, that, that link that you have to federal government and national security stuff? Yeah, I, I think in most cases, uh, the federal government is a very, very difficult customer for early stage companies. Yeah. Sales cycles are long, degrees of customization are high. Uh, the federal government is not good at consuming technology products, especially, right. uh, and especially not good at consuming technology products from relatively early stage companies mm -hmm. where cash flow on a quarter to quarter basis really matters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that said, uh, I think the security market is one place where the government is seen as a, both as an early adopter mm -hmm. um, and also as sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval on technology. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the Air Force, the NSA, other parts of the intelligence community uh, really are at the forefront uh, of a lot of what's happening in the, in the security market. The whole notion of hunting, of proactive hunting, which has become kind of the buzzword du jour in the, in the enterprise security market, uh, it originated in the government. Yep. The Air Force really is, is started building hunt teams to protect Air Force networks. Mm -hmm. And that discipline, that methodology now is trickling out into the enterprise market as, uh, well, mainly as uh, people get hired, you know, from government into commercial security teams. Understood. So, so in many ways, there's, there's a reputational advantage and a recruiting advantage. Is that, is that two of the key? Yeah, I, th I think it's a reputational advantage. You can yeah. say, hey, we, we, you know, we have experience dealing with the most sophisticated adversaries on some of the most complex and important networks in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's uh, uh, the adversary knowledge and understanding and a great talent pipeline. Yeah. You know, and, and people tend to work with and follow their colleagues and friends they trust and respect. Mm -hmm. um, and so having a good reputation in those places allows you to recruit and retain people who are in extremely high demand. Yeah. This is an industry with 0% unemployment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, fortunately and unfortunately, I guess it's a complicated dynamic. So uh, you started out uh, this conversation talking a little bit about uh, the, the failure of the cybersecurity market, which I, I like. Um, just be interested in your forecast on, on the ways in which you think that cybersecurity market is going to mature. Uh, from my perspective, it seems like consolidation is likely. Um, do you think that's going to be government foco focused or commercial focused? Uh, will, will, those, will either of those businesses be more likely to succeed in the future? Or is that not going to be the key determinant of success? Yeah, I, I guess I tend not to draw the line between federal and commercial. Um, I agree with you completely that there's consolidation, not only coming, but already underway. Yeah. You know, winter is not coming in this market. Winter's already here. And winter's been here for nine months. Yep. The, the funding environment has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, there are 1,500 security startups in the U.S. right now. Yep. And... Uh, think about it from a customer perspective. There's enormous vendor fatigue yeah. and huge complexity that security teams really don't want to grapple with. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, we see features that are masquerading as products mm -hmm. and products that are masquerading as companies and companies that are masquerading as businesses. Yep. And uh, consolidation in this constrained funding environment is inevitable. Some of it's going to be driven by customers saying, hey, uh, we have... 75 security product and service vendor relationships today at you know Fortune 100 Company X. Next year, I want to have 60, and the year after that, I want to have 40. So, and uh, I want that stuff to actually work. 
Yeah, well, that's that's another you know that's another issue entirely. I see my comment earlier about strategic failure, and and you know I I joke occasionally that we security companies ultimately are not in competition with one another. Mm-hmm. We're actually in competition competition with insurance. Right. And either we can solve the problem uh, in some reasonable way, mm-hmm. you know, not not perfectly, but provide some reasonable level of assur- of assurance, or. Uh, what happens when you know big companies say, you know what, we we can't win this fight. We're just going to insure against it. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a more academic conversation, perhaps, but um, I, I don't think it's beyond the pale. No, I think I think that's reasonable, and and we're, we've certainly seen over the last, I'd say, three years, a fairly rapid maturation of the insurance market. I'm still not sure what the um, what the actuar- actuarial tables look like for all of that, but uh, I think they're getting there. So if we if we move from from thinking about the the sort of market in that in that way to thinking about some of the particular circumstances for Endgame, particularly about venture capital, uh, you were talking about that some of that capital drying up, but Endgame nonetheless is a venture backed company, and you've you've received multiple rounds of of funding with some pretty high profile Silicon Valley investors. How has that backing been important? particularly as a national security startup compared to any other type of startup? Like we understand why capital is important, but why in your circumstances is it important? Yeah, I think uh, uh, because sales cycles are long in the government, if you're going to start in the government and accrue the technology and credibility benefits that come with that, yeah. you have to be weather, ready to weather those cycles. Mm-hmm. And uh, the talent um, is so hard to acquire that if a uh, mm-hmm. contract slips, you can't just lay people off right. to bridge. You know, the, the big service, the big beltway contractors that are effectively services companies can do that, mm-hmm. right? They can keep some people on the beach, so to speak, but if they don't get a contract, they lay them off. Yep. And then frankly, they're not that hard to rehire. Right. Uh, well, guess what? In the, in the software business, uh, especially at the high end of the software business, you can't do that. Yep. Um, you, you need to recruit people with the hope of actually retaining them through these market cycles because uh, a good developer, a great developer is so much more valuable than a merely good developer. Yep. Uh, so venture is important for that, um, that kind of growth capital. Um, it, it always, you know, I always smile when people congratulate um, a, a venture back team for raising venture capital. Yeah. You know, I, it, it's like congratulating somebody for taking out a really big mortgage on their house. Exactly. So you know the the venture money is essential to building a to building a business uh, mm. in many cases, mm. but the whole goal is to do it with as little outside capital as possible. That's right. So one of the other interesting things there is, given that your uh, backers have sort of come from a West Coast pedigree, valuations may look different. The market may look different. I don't want to ask you this question from an endgame perspective, uh, but if we think about valuations and exits for a any cybersecurity or, or national national security uh, focused uh, startup. How does that play out? Does that mean that if you get venture capital from one source that you need to think about exiting to a different market? How does the, how does the, the type of capital and where it comes from inform your key metrics uh, and the type of business that you go after? So uh, value is all about scale. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really about um, whether you can scale uh, a business's top line without scaling its cost structure right. at the same rate. Right. Yep. How can you drive the wedge between uh, you know the money you bring in and the money you spend? Yeah. Speaking as someone who used to run a services company, I'm painfully familiar with not being able to do that. Yes. So, so yes, and and once again, I would not draw the line so much between federal and commercial as I would between products and services. Yes. Now the two are correlated in the sense that the government 
uh, despite its best efforts in, in the security business, tends to be a consumer of services. Yep. Uh, and the quote-unquote products it buys are often highly bespoke, customized products. Yep. And that's okay because as citizens, you know, it's, it's okay to have the government spending a lot of money to solve a corner case problem. Yep. Enterprises, commercial enterprises tend not to do that, right? Yep. So um, uh, the question of scale and valuation is, is uh, really about building something that is repeatable. Mm -hmm. Can you build a software product that you can sell in more or less identical form across many customers? Or do you need to hire a lot of expensive people to customize and deploy and maintain each new instance? Um, so commercial enterprises, you can typically build one product and sell it to a bunch of people. Yep. Um, if you can do that in the government, then you also would get a product return, evaluation. So, uh, you know, product multiples are somewhere between six and ten times uh, revenue, depending on growth rate. Yeah. Services tend to be closer to one X. Yep. So as a as a CEO making investment decisions, right? Am I going to put the incremental dollar into into services, or am I going to put the in incremental dollar into product? In most cases, you know, we try to put it into product. Exactly right. And so then, um, when when we look at the expectations from uh, capital partners, especially those more familiar with products, uh, rather than the traditional sources for funding for defense businesses, as long as you can show a, a pathway to a scalable product, you think that that will be a relationship that can work. Um, it's just going to be an issue of if you are getting capital, which is expecting product returns and you're running a services business and you haven't been able to articulate that, you're potentially in a world of hurt. Yeah, you need to make that choice right up front. And I think it's extremely hard to do both things under one roof. Uh, to what extent do you think that the uh, the customers in the defense or national security space understand that dynamic or, and or are um, amenable to more of a product development focus? With some beautiful exceptions, I would say that most government customers simply don't understand that dynamic. Yep. Uh, they do not understand that a quarter's end is more than just an accounting technicality. Right, uh, <laughs> right. That, that if you want early stage companies to be your partners over time, mm -hmm. building the sort of innovative technologies that you can't build yourself and you can't rely on big incumbent services companies to build for you, yep. then you better learn to work with them mm -hmm. or else they're not going to be there. They will exit your market and go to the market where they can win. That's right. And, and we're seeing this in all sorts of other areas in the national security space, where the businesses that are left either don't have sufficient revenue opportunities or scale to succeed, or you just don't have the best businesses left. Um, so our conversation is naturally sort of taking us away from the specific case of Endgame and, and to the, the a broader context, which makes sense. You have a lot of background outside of, of Endgame, certainly as, as a very successful CEO of a well-regarded think tank here in Washington, D.C. I'm completely unbiased, but also as an operating partner at Bessemer and as a Marine. So if, if we take that broader perspective and think about national security startups, what value do you see that the government can provide to startups and, and their investors? What value can startups provide to government? And what role can investors play here in some sort of healthy uh, symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I think you're right to think about it holistically as an ecosystem, because mm -hmm. that is what it is, right? The, the government has options in where to acquire capability, mm -hmm. and the companies have options in terms of where to invest uh, and what markets to pursue, and the investors have options in terms of which companies to back. Mm -hmm. So um, it, is, it is right to see this as a, as a multivariable uh, landscape. Uh, I think the government 
um, the most valuable thing that the government contributes to early stage companies is not the capital. Mm -hmm. It's not the purchase order necessarily. It is often uh, coming to the table as a customer, uh, an early customer, and providing feedback on a product, providing validation of a product, helping a company achieve product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in some cases, particularly in the intelligence community and DOD, providing kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval on technology mm-hmm. because they have a reputation as discerning consumers, if yep. you will. Yep. Um, I think the company, in, and in return, the government gets innovative technology, right. which it can't develop on its own. I'm, I think the government in this domain can attract and retain great operators because mm-hmm. you can do stuff in the government that would land you in jail elsewhere. Yep. <laughs> they can attract and retain great analysts because you have access to information in the government that you don't have elsewhere. But the government systemically, generally speaking, cannot attract and retain the best software developers. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to partner to acquire that capability. Yep. Uh, the companies themselves, uh, you know, they can contribute the technology in return. They get the kind of funded development dollars to keep building their businesses, mm-hmm. right? And the investors, I mean, it's a capitalist economy. The investors are contributing capital yep. and that capital is valuable. And in return, they're getting more capital. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of the, uh, just linking up the things that the investors are going to want to see from the business and what DOD or, or the rest of the national security establishment can provide, um, when you talk about that early funding, what are the key metrics that come out of that? Is it stuff like um, uh, annual rate of return or recurring business? Uh, what are those things that are that are most useful? Access to test facilities? What are the specific lists of, or, or things that you would go for? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, annual recurring revenue, ARR, yeah. is one of the key metrics in, in measuring the health and steering mm-hmm. a, an early stage product company. Mm-hmm. Um, multi-year commitments are worth a ton. Yep. You know, the out-year dollar is worth a lot mm-hmm. in terms of planning value. Yep. So uh, we, and I, I don't think we're at all unique, uh, are highly incentivized to discount deeply for a multi-year engagement mm-hmm. because it allows us to plan yep. uh, and, and to invest in a, in a partner relationship over a longer period of time. And I would assume also that um, your investors and potential future investors would see a higher potential multiple based on, on, those, the, on those metrics. So it's actually giving you the opportunity to scale your business, not just in terms of product sales, but in terms of your broader ecosystem. As a sure, you're put, well, you're putting the building blocks together for this year's budget, but also for out your budgets. Yep. And you can begin to layer together a growth path that is compelling. Yeah, excellent. So um, what are the things that you think that, whether it's the Department of Defense specifically or, or other um, people in the in the security governmental space need to do to improve collaboration with startups and draw more startups into into their into their orbit. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think the whole basket of things that we're seeing with uh, with Secretary Carter mm-hmm. is generally positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I the last place I saw him actually before he was uh, um, before he was nominated was at an investor conference out in the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, he has the technical training and background. He has a genuine personal interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's held virtually every other job in the Pentagon, including acquisitions chief, yeah. right? I mean, this is if, there, if there's a profile of a secretary right. who's going to move the needle on this, <laughs> yep. he's got it. That's right. And uh, I think the work uh, with DIUX, um, I think the, the, the new leadership team at DIUX, is, it's the right group of people with the right backgrounds. So all the pieces seem to be 
uh, in place. Yeah. Um, now everyone's going to need to realize that it takes time. Yep. I mean, the, the average life cycle of a venture fund, that is the time from you know, investment to success and harvesting, is five to seven years. Yep. So this isn't something that's going to prove itself out in the next year and not even in the next bu- budget cycle. I right. mean, this, if the department's serious about this, the department's going to have to maintain a commitment to it for five to seven years before you even have early indicators of whether it's working. Yep. And the second thing is the department's going to have to be willing to lose taxpayer dollars. Right. This is venture. Yep. This isn't T-bills. Yep. So if you want a guaranteed return, go somewhere else. Yeah. I always think about that. What, what would it look like if you had a an operating partner at a venture firm providing a congressional testimony based on the returns of their organization, which would be like, overall, we, we tripled the money that you invested in, a, in us. We lost 80% of the original capital, right. but everything came from that 20%. You're, you're going to give us $100, yeah. and we're going to invest an enormous amount of time and energy and effort in losing 98 of your dollars. Yep. And then the remaining two are going to return $320 for you. That's right. And, the, and we don't know which two it's going to be. No. And then the questions from, 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 from our elected officials will be, what did you do with that $98? I'm not interested in the 300 that came back. We're going to screw you over those 98 it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different mindset. It's a, tough, it's a tough mindset to address. So one of the other things, and, and we've talked about this at CNAS in terms of the Secretary's innovation agenda, which we're broadly supportive of as well, is that um, it's great from a leadership perspective to, to have that focus, but that's not necessarily flowing down to the contract officers or the, the mid-level decision makers who are going to make deals happen. Um, and that are going to help people grow businesses. Are there things that you think those or th- those individuals or that level of the bureaucracy needs to do? And, and how, how do we get the right incentives in place for those guys to be thinking about their value as a partner to, to startups? Except for, you know, uh, a few years in uniform in the Marines, I haven't actually spent time in the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... All I can say from the outside is that you've diagnosed the problem accurately. Right. That uh, in many cases, we have an enlightened leader counterpart uh, in a government organization who almost always has an enlightened uh, and sympathetic technical advisor and probably enlightened and understanding and capable uh, technical team members who are implementing a product, using a product. Uh, And it tends to fall apart, like you said, at the contracting officer level. Mm -hmm. And there are exceptions everywhere, of course. Um, But that is where there tends to be a disconnect. And uh, it tends to be where the where the bureaucratic inertia seems to be resident. Um, And I don't know from the outside how to fix it. But that is the thing one of the things that needs to get fixed. Understood. So my last question for you then is, do you have any general advice for anyone listening to this who is looking to start uh, a, a business working with the Department of Defense or is in the midst of doing that? G- general thoughts. My, my advice is largely hopeless, which is go and read uh, Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. I think it's very much like that in my, my experience. You're out there. You're further away from shore than you you were. You don't you don't know where you are. You're drifting. You, you you get hold of something. It's bigger than you know what to deal with. It's bigger than you, and then you can't get it back to shore. Um, and then you wonder who you are and why you were there in the first place. Not great advice. Do you have something better? I than actually that? think it's great advice, and maybe I'll <laughs> reply with uh, more contemporary liter- literary advice. Uh, I love uh, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yep. And there's a section in there where he talks about the struggle. Oh yeah. And the struggle that. is defined as. That time when everyone thinks you're an idiot and no one will fire you. Yep. Just get used to that. And no one cares. No one cares about your struggle. That was, that was a bit that always stuck with me in that as well. 
<laughs> so true. Well, that's a really uplifting, positive note to end on. Thanks, Nate. Um, but but seriously, thank you for um, some deep insights and some interesting perspective in a very practical way. Uh, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. To hear more from the National Security Startup Series, go to startups.cnas.org or search for CNAS on iTunes or SoundCloud.